0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm ML Clark. you In the opening episode for my six-part exploration of petronationalism, The Making of Countries, I explored some of the myths surrounding World War One that shaped our understanding of the nation-state. One of the most important was popularized at the end of World War II, in large part by the historians Leo Gross and Hans Morgenthau. In 1948, for the 300th anniversary of the Peace of Westphalia, these two Jewish émigrés from Austria and Germany advanced a story about the modern nation-state that drew on that ancient history of the treaties established after the Thirty Years' War, a messy European affair involving the Holy Roman Empire encroaching on various national governments. In the version of history these two figures advanced. The Westphalian system in Europe had more or less thrived ever since those supposedly transformative peace treaties up until the breakout of World War I. Back in that episode, I illustrated how the mythic balance of power shaping such a view of history never really existed. Here, though, I want to reframe this Westphalian myth, because there are indeed some similarities between what happened at the end of the Thirty Years' War and what happened at the end of World War I. Just not the greatest similarities, and certainly not the best for human thriving. In Episode 2 of this series, Human Migration in Deep Time, We walked with the human species and its preceding hominid cousins from two million years ago, pretty much up to the start of World War I. There, we reflected on the role of migration as a means of natural expansion, responding to various environmental changes, as well as a means of unnatural expansion, especially through the forced displacement of slave populations and other colonizing forces. Interspersed were also reflections on some of the reasons that mobility was restricted, especially in relation to the rise of nations that wanted to build wealth and necessarily saw their project as requiring a strong sense of ownership over its citizens. Rigid borders essentially emerged for administrative, tax-related, and asset-owning purposes to define that these cogs are mine, and through the cultivation of strong ethno-state identities to make the cogs themselves feel pretty proud about the machine they belong to in the process. Did the system stay that way forever? Of course not. Fears of overpopulation joined with the gradual opening of the world through a broadening network of connected colonies did for a spell lead to relaxed borders and a strong encouragement for folks to strike out and make their fortune. Only as those colonies started to see themselves as fully-fledged nations too and wanted more direct control over their wealth production and holdings, Tensions surrounding outsiders started to grow again. That's where we left off, at least, on the cusp of World War I, where everything now ties together nicely. In that series on petronationalism, for instance, I also noted that Austrian anxieties about its shared border with Serbia informed its preemptively warmongering actions, and also shaped its overly aggressive reaction to a Bosnian Serb assassinating their archduke. A strong example, in other words, of how borders and the rigid cultural definitions that underpin them create the pressure points that exacerbate human conflict. And now all the pieces are set to talk about the madness of our last century and how grossly it's distorted our sense of what humans owe to the territories of their birth and the more appropriate limits, if any, to where humans could be free to go. After all, it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and for six episodes, we're moving through different landscapes in the world of mobility rights and displaced people, our past migrations, our present crises, and the future of movement we deserve. first learned about fluid territories, places on the map that weren't as rigidly defined as their borders first suggested. I was perhaps a little later to the game than some, around 15 years old, after 9-11, when the event brought my attention to more global geography than I'd ever considered before. That's when I learned about ungoverned spaces in countries or regions like Pakistan, Places where the government has not been able to establish its writ across all geographical boundaries. Some analysts suggest up to 60% of Pakistan's territory falls into that category, which is why it was quickly embroiled in a lot of the war-on-terror rhetoric and military operations suddenly flooding our airwaves. That's where the terrorists lived. Instead, those parts of Pakistan had tribal areas, and included regions where local non-state actors dominated. This was nothing like traditional civil wars I'd heard about before. No one was at war exactly in these regions. The government had more or less waved its hand and made a claim to all these lands on paper, in theory, even though in practice local authorities governed themselves. What an absolute trip that was to learn about this phenomenon. I remember going back to my map of the world and tracing other rigid borders there, borders that looked so easily defined, so absolute, especially with the clear, full colour coding for countries on either side. This is part of cultural indoctrination into nationalism, as I explored in my first series of season 2 on petronationalism, we're given as children to think that the world is a much more rigidly defined place than it really is and our histories do us no favours either, at least in the West. It would take time for me to learn that most of the world's current borders did not exist and certainly did not gain their current rigidity until after World War One, and that most of the borders we live with today were set in the 20th century. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961... to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave the east german media chief in the communist party said a short while ago that anyone who wants to leave east germany and go anywhere in the world is free to do so anyone who wants to leave east germany and travel to the west and return will need a visa but visas will be granted it is said immediately or at least urgently by police stations all over the country certainly it helped that over my childhood i saw the maps change in real time the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of Yugoslavia, a country that only came into being after World War I, I might add, and even regional shifts, like the establishment of Nunavut as a new territory in Canada. But still, the overall heft of those rigid lines on the map had scored themselves into my consciousness, my sense of national identity and its value. If you were within this line, you belonged to this place. If the line changed, you belonged to some other place, or, depending on the cruelty of your local administration, maybe you no longer belonged anywhere. Maybe when your state died, your national identity ceased to matter in the world, and you were stateless, just because of an administrative decision, mere pen to political paper. What then? Why on earth should something so arbitrary, so abstract, have such a huge impact on the outcome of everyday human lives? What happened to us as a species that we changed so much over a few fluid centuries from a people that routinely struck out for new lands and made new lives for themselves where they could to this bureaucratic subspecies, Homo sapiens sapiens state citizen, that needed to know exactly what official grouping you belong to to count. The heartbreaking twist in our history in the West is that when the myth of a balance of power between nations was advanced after the end of World War II, to explain what had been crafted and lost with the onset of World War I, was that it better explained the retributive nature of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. Then, a war-torn Europe was looking around at what its last four years had wrought, horrified by the 40 million lives lost not only to frivolous state conflict but also a complete unreadiness for new military technologies to transform the state of war forever. And it wanted vengeance. It wanted a scapegoat. And it had one in Germany. The lines that were drawn up in the Treaty of Versailles weren't meant to restore order so much as to punish Germany severely. Taking away 65,000 kilometers squared of its territory, which included around 7 million people. Germany was compelled to recognize Belgian sovereignty over Mournay, to give up holdings in the east, and to cede control not only to Uppen Malmedy, Memel, Upper Silesia, the province of Posen, and Alsace Lorraine regions, but also the output of its Saar coal mines to France. The League of Nations would also hold this last area in trust for the next 15 years, after which sovereignty would be decided by plebiscite. A similar plan was set up for schleswig holston and a part of southern East Prussia. Eastern Pomerania was also given to the new state of Poland under the rationale that this new nation needed access to the sea, along with the East Prussian sold-out area. Germany was also made to cede the city of Danzig and some of its surrounding territories, including a waterway to the Baltic Sea. The League of Nations thereafter established this territory as the free city of Danzig. And of course, even with all this loss in territory, Germany was still under a huge war debt that it was expected to pay before it would be fully permitted to turn its economy to internal restoration. In some ways, this was far worse than the sharp divisions drawn up during the Peace of Westphalia, which also involved a whole network of specific treaties recognizing and ceding territory between respective warring nations 300 years prior. But the same principle held, quite devastatingly, as we would soon see with the rise of political actors leading into World War II. Is it really any surprise that, in the wake of such heavy-handed fixations on borders, on the construction of rigid new national identities, a humiliated and overly punished people would find comfort in a renewed nationalism all their own? A repudiation of broader European society, when broader European society had already so thoroughly demonstrated its contempt for everyday German citizens. Rhys Jones wouldn't write Violent Borders, Refugees and the Right to Move for almost another century, but the underlying concept of that book, the idea that the existence of borders and specifically, quote, state attempts to contain populations and control resources and opportunities, end quote, is itself a form of violence, is nothing new to our species. Every time we deepen our geographic divides, we also deepen the strains that these divides cause, the pressure points they intrinsically create. After World War I, this happened in abundance with the creation of fixed and heavily monitored state divisions in Europe. After World War II, this happened again, and often in some tremendously complex ways, such as when a still very anti-Semitic world advocated for the creation of a rigidly defined state for a demographic that had seen six million slaughtered, not just by Nazi Germany, but also by the rest of the West's failure to halt anti-Semitic sentiment closer to home. There's far too much material with respect to the intricacies of Israel and Palestine for this series to address, and I haven't even started on the way the Cold War also made strongly delineated territory a deep and abiding concern for the next few decades. But suffice it to say, it is extremely important to remember that after World War II, when the West supported the creation of another Western-styled state in the Middle East, it did so in ways that reflected very little learning about the complexity of creating new borders in our world. And it did so in part because of how it had repurposed much of its own fraught histories of the nation-state. But then again, we covered much of that in other Petro-Nationalism episodes where I also explored one of the abiding alternatives that persisted around World War I and World War II, in the form of tribal territories in the Middle East and North Africa that had far less rigid notions of state borders. Right up until when Western powers, either during or recovering from their own wars, sought Arab government concessions to explore and drill for oil. Then too, it became incredibly important for a given nation to have far more rigid boundaries for itself, if only to clarify exactly who had the right to access and reap the wealth from which of its natural resources. And all this ties together well, doesn't it? Even if a little depressingly. As I noted in the previous episode where we reflected on human migration in deep time as well as in complex recent histories of feudal and colonial practice, the notion of borders in recent centuries has often involved treating human beings as property as much as the resources on the land itself. And that has royally messed with our ability to set better state policy to account especially for the latest planetary pressures on our livelihoods and the attendant rise of people in desperate need of new homes. When it's ingrained in us that our destiny, our range of opportunities, is contingent on the nation state of our birth in relation to how that state is viewed by the rest of the world, how can we not find ourselves more hung up on those arbitrary lines on our maps than on so many other factors that could unite us as a people? And what will it take? What level of hardship on a global scale will we have to bear witness to before we start to reevaluate our fealty to abstracts over human lives? This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with ML Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.